Good morning, everyone. A stunning day, isn't it? It's a bit close, though. A bit muggy. <laughs> right, I'll this thing. All right. That's better. Okay. We are continuing with our series on the fruits of the Spirit this morning. So, for anyone who doesn't know, our reference for that is taken from Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. We've covered so far love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. If you've missed any of those sermons, please, I'd really encourage you, go and take a look at them. I think you can find them on the church website. I know I use Spotify, so uh, and that's under New Life Community Church. It's really worth listening to even some of the other um, branches, versions of it, because you get a different take on everything. It's really good. It's been a fantastic resource for studying this particular passage of Scripture. So today, naturally, we are going to look at the fruit of the Spirit called faithfulness. We all mostly understand what faithfulness is, but I think each of us would give a different answer if we were asked to define it. The Bible teaches us a lot about this fruit and gives us a clear picture of what it should look like starting in the Old Testament. Let me begin by telling a story. I don't know how common it is here in England, but at the school I went to in Zimbabwe, we sang hymns, mostly at the start of an assembly in the morning. Yeah. I never did really pay any attention to who had written those words or why. But it's much more lately that I've begun to realize that there are some incredible testimonies that come from the people who wrote these hymns that I sung. As I prepared for today, I recalled one we would sing from time to time called Great is Thy Faithfulness. This old favorite was written by a man named Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. He was born in a log cabin in Kentucky, a humble birth by any standard. Thomas was a very bright young man and quickly grasped the many things he was learning at school and as he was growing up. As a result, he became a teacher at the same school he had been taught in at the age of 16. At 21, he became the associate editor of his hometown's weekly newspaper, which by all accounts was quite an accomplishment. When he was 27, a revival meeting occurred in his area, and Thomas was born again and became a follower of Jesus. This event would become what he saw as his greatest accomplishment in life. As a lover of poetry, he found a new outlet for his passion, one where he could glorify his savior. From that moment on, he used his ambition and intelligence in pursuit of relationship with God. He was quickly ordained as a Methodist minister and given a congregation of his own in Scottsville, Kentucky. It wasn't long before Thomas met his wife and married her in 1903, starting a family of his own. It would seem to him that his path was set and that a lifetime in the ministry was ahead. However, 
Thomas had a severe decline in his health in the next two years, which actually led to him having to leave his congregation. Financial issues became the next battle, as the hospital bills came in thick and fast. A real struggle had begun, and the momentum he had once had as a younger man seemed to come to an end. In the following years, Thomas had to take whichever work he possibly could to keep up with that steady flow of bills. He did this through selling life insurance. Under these bleak circumstances, a bitterness could have grown, an anger and a confusion as to the state his life was in, probably also directed at God, who Thomas had made Lord over his life. Strangely enough, though, this remarkable man did not become the person we would expect him to have been, but rather, he was quite the opposite. A positivity beamed out of him, one that we as believers know could only have come as a result from his closeness with the Lord. Yes, he was no longer a minister, but now had more time to focus on writing hymns. Yes, he had health problems, but also had loving support from his wife and two daughters. Yes, he faced financial struggles, but he had found a job, allowing him to keep up with those bills. No matter the struggle, Thomas always chose to see God's faithfulness. This positive outlook on life never changed, and in 1923, he wrote his most famous poem, Great is Thy Faithfulness. He sent that poem to Reverend William Runyon, musician of the Moody Bible Institute and editor of Hope Publishing in Chicago. By nature of his position, Runyon had seen many a poem submitted, but when Thomas has crossed his desk and he read it, it moved him so greatly that Runyon quickly went to work on developing a tune. Reflecting on the creative process, Runyon wrote, this particular poem held such an appeal that I prayed most earnestly that my tune might carry over its message in a worthy way. And the subsequent history of its use indicates that God answered prayer. This famous poem was an instant favorite and quickly became the Moody Institute's unofficial hymn. Past the college, the hymn took a bit longer to reach great heights. That is, until a certain man by the name of Billy Graham heard it and began using it in his crusades during the 1950s. What began as a simple poem from a simple man was suddenly reaching the ears of millions of people and has continued to do so every year since. Thomas understood this aspect of the nature of God more than most, and we can see the fruit of it even today. The first verse of this hymn reads, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What I'd like to do this morning 
is bring us to an understanding of what the biblical definition of faithfulness is and look at some examples of this fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness is the fact or quality of being true to one's word or commitments as to what one has pledged to do and professes to believe. It is the fact or quality of being dedicated and steadfast in performing one's duty and working for a cause. It is the quality of adhering to a standard. How descriptive of God is this, though? Part of understanding this fruit of the Spirit is seeing how the Lord does it and take our cue from him. The difference between us and God is that in our own experience, faithfulness will be intermingled with failure. God is faithful because he's constant and true in keeping his promises and therefore is worthy of trust. This is what the scriptures mean when it says that God is faithful. We simply need to read through the Bible and we will see how often God makes promises and fulfills them exactly as he said. God promised Moses that he would give him strength to take the people of Israel out of Egypt and we know this came to be. God promised the people of Israel a land for their inheritance and strength to possess it and we see how this came to pass. God promised that if the people of Israel served him, they would prosper. But if they did not, that there would be judgment. We know this to be true as we read through the history of Israel. These are just highlights. In the New Testament, God promises us things that are very relevant to our lives today. Many of you sitting here can attest to some of these. The gift of the Holy Spirit, salvation through Jesus, a new spirit within us, miraculous meeting of needs, and so much more. There's so much to it that it's necessary to dig into it a little bit. We can see how faithfulness should be truly defined and who our greatest example is. But I personally believe that the waters have been quite muddied as far as this fruit is concerned. As a younger man, my view of faithfulness may actually differ from someone who is more mature, possibly being a more diluted and watered-down version. And I would credit that to the fact that for the most part, we as fallible human beings, especially much more of late in the past years, have allowed Satan to change how we see it. A little step back here and there, an unnoticeable departure from the right standard. What I'd like us to do is start by looking at what this fruit of the Spirit is not before anything else. I had my dictionary close at hand when I was exploring this, and there are some great antonyms for faithfulness, which sound like they're out of a novel. Treachery, disloyalty, infidelity. It creates this mental picture of a devious character biding his time looking for the moment he can stab someone in the back and disappear. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 shows us what we become like when we live apart from the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you read through those sobering scriptures, it is a reminder of what we become when we depart from living according to the Spirit. The scriptures clearly tell us that anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For anyone who believes that they can live without God, this is how he views these types of things. For the most part, everything on that list is considered normal human behavior by secular standards. This is no longer a case of, I've never killed anyone, hurt anyone, or stolen anything, and so I'm a good person. No. God has a standard he has called us to, and in reality, it is an impossible one to attain, except by his grace, which is exactly how God wants us to live, according to his strength, according to his spirit, from a place of reliance on him. Jesus said in Luke 18, to 20, uh, 18 verse 27, when his disciples asked him, who then can be saved? But, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. One of the greatest and most obvious departures from faithfulness is seen in human relationship, particularly romantic relationship. I don't want to act like this is something that's only been developed in more recent years, but there have been some big surges of late. I love to study certain more interesting historical periods, and I've always been fond of reading about Rome. What power, what splendor and heights they reached. How could such a nation be broken and become a relic? I believe that one of the main reasons is that they became more and more debased and wicked as they grew. The Romans were known for their very lascivious lifestyle and sexual immorality as the Bible calls it, is the complete opposite of faithfulness. There are many warnings about the dangers and heartache that result in being unfaithful. Probably the most overt example of outworking faithfulness is through marriage. It requires us to make a lifelong promise to another person, and we dedicate ourselves to them and them alone. As such, it is the place where we would immediately look when we are trying to gauge faithfulness. I read some very sad statistics as I was preparing for this. Divorce rates are incredibly high at 41% of every first marriage, rising to 60% in second marriages and a devastating 73% in third marriages. The top two leading causes of this are firstly a lack of commitment and second, infidelity or unfaithfulness. I don't want to put a spotlight on this area purposefully, but this is where we generally land when we think of faithfulness or a lack of it. However, there are so many more areas which we must look at because this encompasses more than just being true to another person. Most importantly, it should be about being true to our God. The Bible has some examples of what we should avoid in this regard. 
And actually, a lot of them are not even to do with marriage. The first one I want to point out is the story of King Saul, which we'll find in 1 Samuel chapters 9 to 31. Saul is introduced to us as a very humble young man. Scriptures said he stood head and shoulders over other people in Israel and was particularly good-looking. Born into a well-respected family and coming from wealth, he would seem to have been the perfect royal candidate. In fact, Saul had quite a good start to his career. It's one of the most noticeable places in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit came upon someone and caused them to prophesy. The mantle of leadership seemed to fit well. And this young man led Israel into victory over their enemies and inspired the nation to band together in a time of great need. So what went wrong? Because things went very wrong and in quite a short space of time too. Impatience played a big part of it. But ultimately, Saul tried to play the part of Samuel and he was not qualified to do so. His soldiers were deserting and waiting on Samuel seemed to be a false hope. As he made sacrifices and burnt offerings in an act of desperation on an occasion, trying to take matters into his own hands, he crossed a line that he could never go back from. His pride would get in the way and become an obstruction. It never fails to make me sad when I read about how this mistake costs all the kingdom. As we read more in later chapters, it becomes clear that God in his wisdom knows that this is the kind of path that Saul would always have taken. And so the crown is passed to David. God wanted a man after his own heart to lead his people. Someone who, who would keep their eye and faith in the Lord. David made some blaring mistakes in his lifetime too. But one characteristic that set him apart is his humility when he became aware that he had strayed from where God had directed him. Another biblical figure who had a good start in their life and unfortunately didn't finish well was Uzziah. This man became king at 16 years old and following after his father Amaziah, he had a focus on God and led the nation of Judah accordingly. Historians and theologians partly credit this to the presence of a prophet called Zechariah who acted as an advisor to the king. God really prospered this man and he saw some incredible success in his time. Under his supervision, incredible siege devices were created and commissioned to protect the city of Jerusalem from attack and his army was very well equipped. He was a king who valued agriculture Scripture says that he loved the soil and had vineyards and farmers working the fertile land. His fame spread throughout the ancient world and it was well known that he was a great king. His downfall came later in his life though. And scholars generally agree that when Zechariah died, Uzziah became proud and accredited his success and fame to himself and turned his back on God. Second Chronicles 26 verse 16 says, but when he was strong, 
he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. When challenged by a priest of the temple, Isaiah actually became angry and sealed his fate when he could possibly have turned away from what he was doing. As a result, God struck him with leprosy on the forehead and the priest saw it and ran out. Uzziah, who had started his reign with his eye on God, saw everything turn around and his greatness snatched away from him in a moment. He lived the rest of his days in seclusion as a leper. In both of these cases, the departure from faithfulness to God came as a result of self-glorification. They betrayed and violated the trust that God had in them and the confidence that he'd had. When we think about our own salvation, that marvelous gift that we receive through choosing Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we commit our lives to him when we pray that life-changing prayer. We, in essence, give dominion to the Holy Spirit over our body, soul, and spirit. When we live according to the Spirit of God, we see the fruits of this. Have you noticed that when, when you aren't living in a way that would make God proud, these fruits actually wane, and you may begin to see some of the others that we read about in Galatians 5. When we become unfaithful, and betray the trust and confidence God has in us. It leaves us open to the attack of Satan. I want us to look at some biblical examples of people who were faithful to God and stayed so throughout their lives. I think you'll notice there may be instances where someone goes off track and makes some nasty mistakes, deviating here and there. But ultimately, what makes these people stand out is that they turned back to God when they needed to. One man who sits as a great example, slightly cliche, but Abraham. His story is found in Genesis. God picked him out from his older brothers and set him aside to be a great man. Abraham had a closeness with God that wasn't common in his time. The world around him was rapidly descending into a state of total wickedness and debauchery. Abram, as he was known before God changed his name, was a righteous person. And God called him to separate from the people around and go to a land where God promises to bless him greatly. Scripture shows how Abraham honored God building altars to him in the places he settled as a way of remembering the Lord. He was not without fault. On one occasion, as he passed through Egypt with his family, he told Sarah, his wife, to claim that she was his sister so that he wouldn't be killed because she was an incredibly beautiful woman. And Abraham thought that Pharaoh would probably kill him to take her. God had told him that he would prosper him and make him a great nation from his offspring. He totally forgot about this the moment he thought he was in danger and put Sarah and Pharaoh in a position where they could be unfaithful without choice or knowledge. God came through 
and solved this dire situation and saved them all from an outcome that could have had some disastrous effects. To make it worse, it wasn't the last time Abraham would make this exact same mistake. God looked at Abraham's heart, though, and knew that he was a righteous man whose faith was set upon him. And so we see instead of punishment, he continued to bless and prosper him. Later in Abraham's life, God blesses him with a son whom he called Isaac from Sarah, his wife, who had been completely barren until this point. It's from this that we see one of the greatest outworkings of a human being faithful to God in Scripture. God tested Abraham and told him one day to take his son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. The scriptures don't allow us to see or know what kind of emotion Abraham felt, just that he was obedient in this. And he takes Isaac to the mountain that God had set aside for them. They're alone. And Isaac asks the heartbreaking question, my father, where is the lamb for an offering? Abraham's answer revealed his maturity and the depth of belief in the promises of God now. God will provide. In a very dramatic way, just as the knife was raised, an angel called out and stopped the proceedings. God provides. A ram is caught in bushes nearby and they use this as an offering. God knew that Abraham believed firmly in his promises and this was why he was so obedient. This here is what the Bible means about faithfulness. Let's look at one more example, quite a special one actually, because her story shows a woman of incredible character. Ruth was born a Moabite, which means she was a foreigner and an outsider as far as Israelites go. Ruth lost her husband, those scriptures don't say what caused it, we know that she was a still a young woman. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was an Israelite, had also lost her husband and longed to return to Israel since she knew that she would come under the care of the people she had grown up with. They were living in Moab at the time. Ruth chose to stay with Naomi as they departed the land where she was born and went to Israel. Even though she could have followed her sister, who had also been married to Naomi's son, who went home. When they returned to Israel, Ruth continued to show her faithfulness to her mother-in-law by gleaning grain in the fields for long hours after the reapers had gone through so that they had food to eat. This didn't go unnoticed, and it wasn't long before the owner of those fields, a man of great standing in the community called Boaz, called her to him and gave her special privileges, allowing her to gather grain more easily. All through this time, she stayed true of her promise of faithfulness to Naomi. It became well known by many who she was and her character, which was a remarkable one. On the advice of Naomi, Ruth eventually approached Boaz, who in their culture was called a redeemer. And through a sequence of events, they were married. And Ruth bore a son called Obed, who was the father of Jesse, 
King David's father. This Moabite woman became a part of the genealogy of Jesus. Why? Her humility and faithfulness set her apart in that time. Each one of these examples that that we've looked at today, you will notice are Old Testament characters, which means that they were living under a different covenant than what we are today. Firstly, that meant that when they had slip-ups and went off course, God was just and right in punishing them. And in certain situations, this looked quite severe. Think of Uzziah, struck with leprosy. We must still take very seriously that our God is a holy God and that it is important to be respectful to him. The great gift that we now have through Jesus and his sacrifice for our own lives means that we don't have to live in fear of God striking us with affliction or disease if we depart from the path that he set. As part of the new covenant that God made with us through Jesus, we also now have access to the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. As 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. The beauty of this is that we have unprecedented access to God. We can draw from the Spirit, which means walking with faithfulness is much easier. The question we need to answer is, how do we apply these truths to everyday life? How do we practice faithfulness to God, our relationships with other people and our priorities and commitments? I would say that the best place to start is with our relationship with God. If we're aiming at him and his standard, the rest will follow suit because the word of God encompasses every aspect of our lives. Having a greater understanding of the word of God, which is the Bible, and the promises that God makes to us in there means that we can trust fully and rest in the knowledge that he only wants the best for us. I recently heard a description of faith and how to increase our faith that will serve well as an answer to this question. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand the understanding of the object of your faith and faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all of his promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God. Read of Jesus Christ. The same powerful word that long ago brought the universe to life is the same word that can bring you to life and furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. 
When we look at Abraham, we can see in retrospect how had he fully trusted the word and promise of God, he would not have made some of the mistakes that he did. Since we know God to be faithful and to keep his word, why don't we behave in that way? Perhaps in actual fact, we don't truly trust God. How then can we expect to be faithful when we don't really think that God himself is capable of taking care of our situations? These are questions I ask myself very often. The faith giants, people who have been constant in their word and deed, the thing that sets them apart from an average person is their unwavering faith and belief in the word of God. Take these promises in this word and apply them to yourself. The Lord speaks to us through his word. We're living in a time where there's great conflict and unrest. However, I don't want to draw attention to that. We already know enough. What did Jesus say about these things? What wisdom can he share? One of my favorite passages of scripture is in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. It says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Put simply, when our trust is in our heavenly Father, faithfulness becomes a byproduct. The responsibility that we have is increasing that trust by learning more about our incredible God. The more we learn through his word, the more we will see how trustworthy and faithful God is. We've explored a lot about the relationship aspect of this fruit, but that's not all there is to it. Faithfulness can be outworked in other ways too. Our jobs, for example, commitment to a task. It plays out in so many important ways and it's vital to our walk as Christians because this is something that will make us stand out to the people around us. 
taking an opportunity to be unfaithful is all too common and very often encouraged in our society. So when we stand against this or behave in stark contrast, it will inevitably lead to people seeing more of Jesus. Sometimes we must remind ourselves of why the members of the early church were called Christians. Although it's often assumed it was meant as a derogatory term, which means little Christs, the citizens of Antioch gave a name to categorize this faith, which was radical and stood out completely from other sects of Judaism. In reality, what an honor to be called a little Christ, to let Jesus shine out of us and be a beacon of hope and security in a world where those things are absent or false. It is one of the greatest things we can do. May I invite the band up, please? What I'd like to do this morning is to place a challenge at your feet. This week, as we go about our daily lives, there are two things that we can focus on which will be of untold value. The first is this. Let us strive to expand our knowledge of the promises that God has made towards us. When you read your Bible, and I'm speaking to myself just as much, don't disconnect from the passage thinking it was meant for someone else in a different time. Take those words and let them be applicable to yourself. We have an amazing tool called Google, which is brilliant at helping to find scripture. If you have a need in your life, or even a desire, explore the word of God and look at the ways in which he has promised to meet our needs. Secondly, and this is a follow-on from the first part. Let's ask God where we can work on our faithfulness to him. When we get a revelation of how the Lord has come through on our behalf, it can only nurture adoration and praise. God has called each one of us to a particular purpose in this life, and as such, we need to develop and cultivate an attitude of obedience to him. I really believe that there are so many opportunities that we miss out on by simply not listening to him or being slow to respond to that still small voice. Again, this is incredibly relevant to me in particular, being obedient to what God calls us to be through his word is vital for our growth and maturity and particularly if we want to be used by God. Have you had a nudge of late about something? Is there a particular habit you felt a call to sort out? Or perhaps someone you feel you need to approach for whatever reason? Maybe there's something you think that God would like the church to hear about, an encouragement or a picture put on your heart. Believe it or not, when we are obedient in the seemingly small things, we build up our faith and become more sensitive and receptive to what the Holy Spirit is talking to us about. Let's pray. Yes. Father, as ever, we thank you for your unchanging love. Your word is so clear about the promises you have made towards us. 
and then more so, your faithfulness to fulfill them. This is a fruit that each one of us here today longs to grow in and become more like your son, Jesus. I ask for fresh revelation of the promises in the word and that we will begin to see more and more how applicable they are to our own personal lives. We lay our anxiety before you today, remembering what Jesus said. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's take this opportunity to just praise our wonderful God for his faithfulness.